Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A Harvard history professor recently discovered that her undergrads could not read cursive, which might not be too surprising, as computers and an emphasis on keyboarding have meant about half of U.S. states don't require cursive in schools. California does include teaching cursive in its Common Core standards, though has left it up to districts to decide how much they will. So is something being lost with the decline of cursive? Beyond the charm and personal touch, why do some people insist cursive is important? We'll find out. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In one of her undergraduate history seminars, Harvard professor Drew Gilpin Faust was surprised to learn that the majority of her students could not read cursive. The historical manuscripts, even the handwritten feedback notes on their papers, leading Faust to ask, what gets lost when we cannot read or write in cursive? It's the subject of her recent piece in The Atlantic titled, Gen Z Never Learn to Read Cursive. And Professor Gilpin Faust joins us now. Drew Gilpin Faust, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, we are delighted to have you. Tell us more about that recent moment when you realized that your Harvard students could not read cursive. Well, it came as a complete surprise. A student was referring to a book that he was describing to the class about the Civil War, which was the subject of the seminar. And he said it has wonderful illustrations of artifacts and also many manuscripts. But of course, I can't read those manuscripts because I don't read cursive. And I just stopped in my tracks. I couldn't believe what he was telling me. I guess I'd kind of recognized that students weren't writing cursive, but somehow that hadn't in my mind translated into the fact that they were also unable to read it. And so I began to ask them to enlighten me about the history that I seem to have missed in recent years of this dramatic change in um, student capacities and the implications of those changes. Yeah. What did you learn about how they were compensating for their inability to read cursive, even though they may not have put it that way? (laughs) Well, I asked them about things that just seemed to me obvious right away, like, do you have a signature? And they said, well, we sort of write in block letters and then put in some squiggles or just develop some squiggles themselves. And I asked them about what it meant in their their classwork and in their education. They are history students. And I said, do you find a way around reading manuscripts? And uh, the students said, yes, they sometimes had to redesign research topics so that they didn't have to use manuscript materials and could legitimately rely on published materials. And then I wanted to ask them about what it meant in their private lives. And 
were there times that they wanted to communicate or needed to read cursive uh, and they were unable to. And one student said that when he got letters from his grandmother, he had to have his parents translate them. That was the word he used. And so we we continued this discussion for a bit. And it, it was, I think I was an ancient artifact in a way. And um, they were amused by me and I was amused by them. But then we began to kind of think about some of the implications, not in the sense of being unduly nostalgic and bemoaning the changes, because so many changes have had beneficial effects. I mean, what we can do with our computers and our iPhones is remarkable. But I think it's important to mark what's lost, too, and to figure out, are there ways to make up for that? Or or do we just simply need to be aware of it? I got just today a, a message from one of my students who was in that class who'd seen the article. I sent it around to all of them when it came out. And she said that she is now trying to reteach herself cursive or to perfect her cursive because she hadn't really thought about what was lost. And she wants to try to counteract that in her own life. And so I think our conversation had an effect on on the students to make them more contemplative about the meaning of change. And what a great thing for history students to see change happening in their own lives, not just in the past eras that they're reading about. Yes. What what did you say that seemed to resonate with the students that made them contemplative? Because initially it didn't sound like they really thought it was that big of a deal. Well, they recognized some of the ones who had some of the students who'd made decisions to choose different topics realized that they'd lost the power to investigate certain parts of the past. And I think that was a bit sobering to them. As yes, you had cons- that example of somebody yeah. not doing Virginia Woolf for mm-hmm. an assignment because it would have involved reading Woolf's handwritten, handwritten letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was a it was an imposition of a limitation on them um, that they perhaps hadn't recognized. And then some of them began to talk about um, the connections that will be undermined and and threatened in a sense of can you rely on someone else's transcriptions of letters? Do you make yourself dependent on um, somebody else's decisions that could be influenced by politics or it could be influenced um, by other kinds of attitudes or um, agendas for the transcriptions? I didn't talk about this with the students because I really only learned about it this week um, with an obituary about a scholar whose reputation was made in transcribing the works of George Orwell after the initial transcribers of the works of George Orwell edited them, expurgated them, to take out a lot of the politics, to take out a lot of the words that seem like obscenities or in other ways offensive. So that for a long time, the transcriptions of supposed accurate transcriptions of Orwell's works were completely inaccurate. Mm. And so when we lose the ability to to read cursive and to go back and check ourselves, we make ourselves dependent on others' agendas in that way. We're talking with Harvard professor and former Harvard president Drew Gilpin Faust, who recently realized that the majority of her kids in her class could not read cursive. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Can you read or write in cursive? Do you feel that it's important too? And it's still a relevant part of your life? You can share your thoughts by emailing forum at kqed.org or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by calling us 866-733-6786. You wrote in The Atlantic, handwriting can make the past seem almost alive in the present. How? 
I've always felt a direct physical connection with the person who's writing, whose manuscripts I was reading. And that, for me, in one sense, may be antiquarian, and yet there's a kind of vividness about feeling that the past is there in your hands and you are able to parse it in the way the person who wrote those words wished you to. So it's an exciting prospect for students to be able to do that. And faculty members, teachers have often taken them to archives to simply energize their enthusiasm about how they can reach across time, time travel in a sense, through the reading of materials from the past. In the days since this article appeared, I've received hundreds of responses of a variety of sorts, but I'd say the most characteristic response comes from teachers who are talking about how they've had to revise their teaching in light of this incapacity that they have discovered in their students and what they feel they have lost in their ability to teach history and excite students about history. And so that, that has been extremely interesting to me to find that I'm not the only teacher who has been challenged in this way. Yes. As the president of Harvard, especially, uh, you were writing handwritten notes. You described them as an integral part of your job. Why did you put value in a handwritten note versus one that was typed and, and personally signed by you, for example? I thought that when I wrote a handwritten note, it sent a message that I have touched this and I want it to touch you, that I am writing this myself and it's not created by some staff member or dictated by some other person. It's directly from me. And that there was a kind of intended magic about that, a uh, embodiment of me in on the page that mm. I was sending off to them. And I always received thank you notes with from other people with great pleasure and appreciation. And it's funny, a number of people have responded to this article by saying, uh, sending me an email saying, this is an email, I liked your article, but I'm also sending you a cursive note because I want you to have this. So I see that as an acknowledgement of, of that kind of connection. And we haven't lost that, even though cursive is disappearing. I think of the obsession with autographs. Mm -hmm. Why would someone want an autograph of a famous person? It's to say, that famous person touched this piece of paper, and I can now hold this piece of paper and have a link, a connection to that individual. You're answering the question that I had in my mind, which is, if we are mostly typing, has the currency of writing as an expression of yourself gone away too? But it, it doesn't sound like you feel that way. And also, we've had quite a response from listeners. We invited them if they wanted to, to send handwriting samples, and we've received so many signatures, letters, even calligraphy. Our listeners clearly also love cursive and have very, very lovely cursive. So so it is interesting to see that that exists. There is technology, uh, Professor Faust, that can read cursive. Uh, Ancestry.com, for example, uses technology to translate written documents like the 19th century census records. But, mm -hmm. but that still doesn't seem to quite be enough, you think. Well, I hear, I have not used such programs myself, but I've heard from others that the um, AI interventions still struggle with certain um, kinds of cursive and haven't entirely mastered it. 
Uh, I expect they ultimately will, given the rapid pace of technological improvement and change. But nevertheless, is there something um, that is challenging about that in that does AI have certain inborn um, biases? We've certainly seen that argued in many other contexts where AI has seen, for example, facial recognition. Certain ethnic, ethnic groups are not recognized as readily as others. Uh, what What is going to be the dimensions that may be eliminated or muted or um, in some way distorted by AI recognition? We'll see. And it also doesn't replace the kind of direct engagement of the reader with the documents of the past. And that is something I think my students felt that they had in some sense missed and that they, to a certain degree, regretted missing. Well, you share an anecdote supporting your your thesis on the value of, of handwriting of a student coming up to you, asking you to sign a copy of, mm-hmm. of your book. <laughs> what did, what happened there? Well, this was the very last class, and a student had came up to me and asked me to sign a copy of my book. And given our conversations about about cursive, I I sort of laughed and said, "Of course." And I wrote his name to to him, and I wrote my name, and then I wrote a little message in the middle, just thanking him for his lively participation in the class. And then I handed him the book, and I said, "Do I need to read this to you?" <laughs> and. <laughs> Even the most sort of mundane interactions in life, I now look at through this this idea: Can people read it? I one of the things I also talked about with them and in the article was faculty members who write comments on student papers as they um, grade them in cursive, and students not being able to read those. I find many of the faculty who still do that are unaware. And I got a wonderful note from a friend at another institution, a, a history professor, saying. He had always written these handwritten notes, and he polled his class yesterday. It was, I believe, a graduate class, so a little older than my students, and they could all read cursive. So he, with great relief, recognized <laughs> that for one more semester at least, he could continue to write handwritten well, Professor um, comments Faust, on the paper. Thank you for opening our eyes. Stay with us, listeners, for more of Forum. Thank you so much. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe that it came from you Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the relevance of cursive in our increasingly digital world. 
or even our handwritten signatures no longer needed on many official documents these days. But first, let me tell you what we'll be talking about tomorrow. We'll be talking about the California condor. It's been called both terrifying and magnificent with a wingspan measuring nine and a half feet. After nearing extinction, the condor has been making a comeback and is being reintroduced to Northern California by the Yurok tribe. And we'll learn more about the project. But uh, on the theme of comebacks, we are talking today about whether you think writing in cursive should make one, being able to read in cursive should make one. And you are sharing your comments. Here's Mike who writes, being able to read cursive and to be able and willing to work through very, very many hands of cursive is key to genealogy. Yes, the formal U.S. census is recorded in cursive. One set of instructions for a census required the census taker to own a good ink pen. It's funny that the computer technology which makes these family records visible makes being able to read cursive even more important. And let me go to Deb, Deb in San Francisco. Hi, Deb. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So this is such an eye-opening conversation. I, at 62 years old, had no clue that, didn't even think that people were still learning how to write. And for me, I travel a lot. I write handwritten cards from the plane, especially to my sister who lives in England. And it it brings me to a mindset that I'm sitting across from her having a cup of tea and a conversation. Mm. And it's such a connection that isn't the same when I just send her off a text. So well, that, I, yeah, that is lovely, Deb, and, and kind of fascinating to hear. And I think brings us right into the next part of our segment. Let me introduce listeners. Let me introduce the two who will be joining us now. Robert Wiley is an assistant professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Robert Wiley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Also, Virginia Berninger is with us, Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington College of Education, who's researched the role handwriting and cursive in particular can play in our lives. Virginia Berninger, glad to have you on as well. Thank you for inviting me. And Robert Wiley, let me start with you. We had to say goodbye to Professor Drew Gilpin Faust, a professor of history at Harvard, also the former president of Harvard from 2006 to 2012. Professor Faust had to catch a plane. But just before the break, we were talking with the professor about the value of being able to read in cursive and the shock of realizing her students couldn't. And you know this very well, because as I understand it, before you became a professor, you taught in grade school and you were also told not to write in cursive, correct? That's right. I, I had a very similar experience to her. I was writing. So this was high school uh, and I was writing on the board something completely mundane. It might have just been the day's date. And a student raised his hand and asked, what did it say? Uh, and I was a little confounded at the time because it was my first experience with that. But um, very quickly, I learned that, in fact, you know, other senior teachers told me, oh, no, don't do that. Don't write on the board in cursive. You're going to lose all these students. They can't read it anymore. And so it was sort of an unofficial thing you were told. Just don't do it. It's not a good practice. Yeah, but you have found that cursive, that handwriting generally is... Mm -hmm good for our brains in, in a way. Uh, can yeah. you talk about that? What impact the act of writing has on our thinking? Yes. So there's an old expression from neuroscience that says that neurons that fire together, wire together. And it's sort of a simplification of a, a pretty fundamental idea that 
we have associations, you know, in time and place between things that we're learning, things that we're doing. Uh, and so typically, you know, when you, if you're say learning, whether you're a child learning for the first time written language, or you're an adult learning a new written language, when you write something, you typically are also seeing what the product of that writing. And you may be, for example, writing to dictation, which means at that same moment, you're also hearing the sounds that those visual forms are representing. And so in our brains and in our minds, we get all of these connections, functional and sometimes literally physical connections between these different, what we call modalities. You know, so written language has the visual modality, they, they look like things, but there's the motor modality of how we create those shapes with our hands. And there's the auditory modality for how we hear those sounds. And so writing is a fundamental part of sort of written language as a whole, the way it's typically represented in a, you know, an adult fluent individual who's literate, the writing is not separate from the reading. They're intrinsically related. Huh. And, and typing doesn't provide that, the, the motor, I guess, of typing. Also the fact that mm -hmm. when you're taking notes, for example, on, on a laptop, you can usually get a lot more down. Yes. So there's, there's a couple of point, important points there. One is that um, it's true that typing is another way that we can produce language, you know, produce those visual shapes. But as we all know, the, the layout of the keyboard is arbitrary in the sense that, you know, when A is next to S, there's nothing similar about the shape or the sound or the names of those letters. There's no connection between the array of what you're typing, which fingers you use those motions, and what it actually represents. And that's very different from handwriting, right? So, you know, if I type a, an A versus a Q, if you're looking at a keyboard, the motion is very, very similar. But if you're writing an A versus a Q, the motions are very, very different. Mm -hmm. And so that handwriting is sort of another clue that helps us differentiate between those letters that you don't really get when you're typing. Um, it is true that typing, you know, you can type faster, you can produce more words per minute typing than you can by handwriting. Um, and so there can be sort of an illusion that there's a benefit there for typing, but it can also have a sort of trade-off where you can, um, if you're taking notes, as you say, for example, by typing, you don't have to think so much about what you're writing in your notes because you can sort of verbatim just write down maybe everything that you're hearing. But if you're doing it by handwriting, you tend to have to process more, be more selective about what you're choosing to write down. And so handwriting can sort of be a way to benefit, be more reflective about what you're deciding is important. Mm. I wonder if that's why people say they retain more when they're taking written notes versus typing what someone is saying. It's an interesting point. And Virginia Berninger, I'm sure uh, all of this is definitely something that you're familiar with with regard to the, the value of handwriting. But you're also an advocate specifically for cursive. And, and I'm curious, what is specific to cursive itself that you think is so oh. beneficial? First, I need to correct. I'm an advocate for multimodal writing. Oh. Um, as director of NIH grants um, for over 25 years, we have found that all the handwriting modalities, manuscript printing, cursive, as well as use of a keyboard, as long as the student has been taught touch typing, can all be beneficial, as well as the use of other um, computer tools like the stylus or even the index finger right on the screen of an iPad. So the important thing is that the student has been taught to use a particular modality. And we started out studying kindergartners and first graders, and 
we're able to show that handwriting played a very important role in reading. Actually, teaching handwriting plus reading, the children made more gains in their word reading than if we just worked on word reading. But that was manuscript, because before the Common Core era, children would get manuscript printing instruction, uh, kindergarten through second grade, and then cursive instruction, third grade through fourth grade. And we did find advantages for manuscript for reading. But because of the controversy about cursive and also whether we even needed to teach handwriting once we had computers and the Common Core, which wasn't really based on research evidence, it was people's thoughts on what kids should be taught, we did a longitudinal study and we followed the same child grades one, two, three, four, five, or grades three, four, five, six, seven. And the important finding was starting in third and fourth grade when children had cursive instruction, we found an advantage for cursive. The children spelled better when they could use cursive. They wrote more, they wrote faster, they wrote better in their compositions when they could use cursive than when they printed or when they used the keyboard. Why? Now, Do you mind just explaining what made them better spellers? We thought about it. When you think about it, the connecting strokes in cursive. Cursive not only is more curvy letter formation, each of the strokes is connected to the next letter with a distinctive stroke. So children are learning to link the letters into word units. And that's what you need in spelling, to treat mm. the cluster of letters as a word with a meaning. Manuscript doesn't allow you to connect in quite the same way because there's no connecting links. Also, cursive was invented before we had typewriters so that people could write faster. And when can, you can and write faster, you're going to get more down, you're going to get your ideas down faster in a given amount of time and express more ideas. So there was an advantage to cursive. That is really interesting. Well, we have gotten so many calls and comments. Let me go to some more. Uh, Savala in Richmond, join us. Hi, Savala. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. And as a professor at, at UC Berkeley, this is so fascinating to me. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to add a little bit of the kind of moral and um, familial and political dimension to this conversation based on my own experience, if, if I may. So Please. I recently decided to um, research my family's history of slaveholding in antebellum Virginia. And doing this required me to review property tax ledgers on which enslaved people were listed and those ledgers are all written in cursive. Um, I just think, you know, reckoning with those ledgers was such a powerful experience, not just for me, but for my whole family. And if I hadn't been able to read them, you know, not only would I have remained ignorant about the facts of my family's engagement with chattel slavery, I never would have experienced the sort of ineffable, emotional, human power of sensing someone else's hand noting the gender and ages of these enslaved people that my family was trafficking. So, you know, what an incredible loss that would have been morally and politically and also for my family history. So engaging with these, 
you know, ancient texts by comparison with what we have with, you know, iPhones and stuff, it's, it goes beyond just like academic interest, right? It can really have profound um, consequences for families. And I hate to think of, of students missing out on the ability to, to know about their own family history um, mm. with that, that level of reality and sort of moral detail. Well, yeah, well, Savala, that was that was incredible and quite an incredible endorsement of the value of learning to read and even write in cursive as well. Uh, Professor Wiley, I don't know if you have had similar thoughts around the political, moral, familial components of cursive and the value of handwriting and learning how to read that style of handwriting from the past. Well, you know, it, what it makes me think about is a, it's an aspect of handwriting that is particularly true of cursive uh, as opposed to print, um, which is that we can see, uh, and it's not something that we, I think, recognize consciously because it's not really a deliberate process, but we actually recover when we're looking at handwriting, we are actually recovering information from what we see about basically what it is the person who wrote that was doing in order to make those shapes. And I'm talking about things like the thickness of the lines, the direction that they were doing their strokes, sort of like when you're looking at a painting and you can see how different artists have different um, you know, brush strokes that they use. We have good research that has shown that actually part of what we do when we're going to read something to figure out the meaning of what we're reading is we use, we use that type of information and we can say, oh, I see here that this was a downward stroke where there's a curve. And I get that sense that if I were doing that myself, I must have been writing you know, a C or an A, whatever it is. And that sort of dynamic information about what actions were used, it's called embodied cognition or grounded cognition. And there's a lot of evidence that this is sort of true of a lot of the ways that we perceive the world. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at handwritten notes, when you look at cursive, there is the trace left behind of what that person was doing in that moment to create that thing. That's not there if you're looking at a typed page. You don't get that you know, from Times New Roman. It doesn't convey that information. So there really is something there in the visual signal. If, uh, let me go to I, Yvette. Oh, sorry, go right ahead, Virginia Burninger. Oh, if, if I could interject. Um, I think a lot of the bad press for cursive and handwriting in general is the way it used to be taught. They'd uh -huh. spread it out a letter to a day and drill and skill. And that was not necessary. And um, actually in our research, we have found very effective ways where you only practice each letter once in a lesson, but there's a particular strategy and you give numbered arrow cues for forming the letter, but then you close your eyes, you see the letter in your mind's eye, and then you open your eyes and you write it from memory. So you're creating that code for the letter in your mind. And you yes. can do this with printed letters, you can do it with cursive. And we did a lot of brain research where we look at brain function between those with and without different kinds of learning disabilities before and after instruction. And when you teach in this way, handwriting, the brain differences disappear after the specialized instruction. And then it doesn't take the teacher a lot of her teaching time. She has time for other things. You might only have to spend 15 minutes two or three times a week as long as you teach the handwriting and then show the children how to use it for composing or for spelling activities. And you get this transfer to important things. And we know that children 
have a greater chance of dropping out of school, or I should say students in general, if they can't do the written assignments. So there's a real advantage for teaching writing for the purpose of completing written assignments so they can actually move on to the next grade and graduate. And, well, I'm really um, glad so you're bringing in. How- yeah, Virginia, I'm really glad you're bringing in how it's taught because it is one of the the things that I hear, A, that there is so much that goes on for students. Their curriculum is so packed already that learning cursive just on the list of priorities is less important to a lot of people in our increasingly digital world, as I mentioned earlier. But the other piece of this is my own memories of how penmanship was taught is that it it could be quite grueling and uh, it could also really affect people's self-esteem because nice penmanship was sort of associated and seen as a marker of a better person. There were gender and class differences around how people wrote sometimes sort of had this like elitist flavor to it or could. Um, and, and I do think that there are some people with really bad memories of their cursive uh, moments in school. Virginia, right, are you there? Yeah. Yes, I am. But it's possible to do it differently, where you teach in a very efficient manner, the letter formation, but then you engage them in meaningful writing activities that really engage their mind and that are fun. And um, handwriting can have a very positive experience if it's taught right. And the teacher's going to have plenty of time to teach all the things she has to teach so the kids can pass the tests. (laughs) Well, Steve writes, all of our children went through elementary school, at least part of junior high school at Lycée Francais de San Francisco. Lycée and the French put great emphasis on cursive, the reason. The French say it helps develop fine motor skills, which seems absolutely reasonable. A couple of funny comments this listener tweets. One day there might be translators of cursive as there are of hieroglyphics today. And another listener writes, now we boomers have a secret language that younger generations can't read. We're getting your thoughts on cursive. You can share them at 866-733-6786, posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or emailing us. More of Forum after the break. I'm Nina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking all things cursive and handwriting today, and we're 
Hearing from you, our listeners, we're talking with Virginia Berninger, Professor Emeritus of Educational Psychology at the University of Washington School of Education. Robert Wiley is Associate Professor in Psychology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 and in all the digital ways that we have, email, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And let me go to Yvette in Berkeley. Hi, Yvette. Hi. Um, this is so interesting. Uh, my sister yesterday just shared with me that she found herself at the grocery store having forgotten her shopping list. So she called home where she knew her 20-something son could read her the grocery list, but he couldn't because <laughs> oh, it was in my. cursive. <laughs> so he said, you know, item number one looks like, I think it looks like bread. <laughs> um, you know, and he's a gifted student with a master's degree. But if I could also just for quickly, Mina, um, share that um, I'm 62 and learning cursive in whatever, the third grade, was um, a misery to me. And I was always a very good and compliant student. So having lousy penmanship really was miserable to me. And to this day, I'm 62, to this day, if I had to write a paragraph in cursive to save my life, I couldn't do it. Well, Yvette, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure it breaks uh, Robert Wiley and Virginia Burninger's heart to hear you say that that was your experience and also just underscores the importance of it being taught in the ways uh, that Virginia has recommended as well. Well, thanks for sharing both of those stories, Yvette. Really appreciate hearing from you. Uh, let me go to Barbara next. Hi, Barbara. Oh, hello. What a good segue for me. I learned cursive at the hands of Catholic nuns. And they were mean to us when we did not do it properly. They would wrap our hands with a ruler. So the start was bad. But I've maintained my handwriting. I love writing thank you notes. People like to get them. But the most moving experience for me about cursive, and I think it was the Palmer method. It was above the blackboard at the time, you know, written out, um, was when I went to Europe and I saw in a glass case, the personal journal of St. Teresa of Avila. And it was awesome as an experience mm. to know that she had written that journal with her own hand. Well, Barbara, thank you for sharing your experience. Sorry about the nuns. Um, but I do want to bring someone into the conversation who has had a really wonderful experience learning cursive. This is Sandra Gutierrez, associate DIY editor of Popular Science, who wrote a recent article called, Wait, It's Not Too Late to Get Good Handwriting. So, Sandra, are you with us? Hi, Mina. How you doing? I'm well. So first of all, talk about how you came to love handwriting, how you learned cursive, and how it was such a nice experience, I think, for you in Catholic school. <laughs> I did go to Catholic school, though. I did not have nuns smacking my wrists with rulers, so that was a little bit less traumatic. Um, I've always been a bit of a papyrophiliac uh, since birth, I guess. I've always been drawn to stationery and fountain pens and stuff like that. So having the opportunity to actually write about handwriting, it's sort of like this is the moment I've been preparing for this my entire life. <laughs> 
Well, well, tell us, for the people that we have convinced to incorporate cursive or to reinvigorate handwriting in their lives, what are some of the things that they can do to make the experience really fun, pleasurable, especially if they've had bad experiences? Well, I think that you said something that is very crucial there. You need to make it a pleasure. I feel like uh, a lot of what's been said already about the trauma of being taught uh, cursive, it's very ingrained in people's brains. Some, some people just have a harder time developing fine motor skills. So they're like really traumatized about this. So I feel like just making the practice of handwriting as pleasurable and you know joyful for you as possible is absolutely crucial. So in my story, for instance, I go about like choosing the right sort of notebook or sheets of paper and the, the perfect tool and everything is supposed to work for you. So don't think about a fancy fountain pen. Don't think about, you know, leather binded notebooks, just, you know, sometimes a post-it and a big crystal pen will do. Uh, I feel like that is absolutely crucial. And of course, practice. Handwriting is muscle memory. Yeah. Do you have a pen of choice that you like? I have a bunch, uh, actually. And it like, you know, it changes. Right now, I'm actually uh, using my Lamy Studio fountain pen, uh, which I really, really like. But sometimes I go with mechanical pens. Sometimes I use, uh, you know, Muji gel pens, which are like super cheap, but they're awesome. Yeah. Uh, the Pilot G2, for instance, is also like a fan favorite. I have a bunch of them in myriad colors. So it sort of depends. Robert, I understand you're not a huge ballpoint pen fan, right, Robert Wiley? No, I'm not actually. I like felt tip. Yeah. Yeah, felt tip. That I do too. Felt tip, there's something really nice about the way it moves. Virginia, our earlier caller mentioned something called the Palmer method. And I think you may have alluded to this, but but the modality doesn't really matter. Like, it's okay <laughs> what kind of cursive you learn. Well, first of all, I was familiar with Beth Slingerland, who introduced um, cursive handwriting to help children with learning disabilities. And um, so that was widely used for a while. There's different handwriting programs out there. The important thing is that children learn to produce accurate, meaning it's legible to other people, and automatic they can start to form it in an automatic way without stopping to think. So they can use their mental resources for thinking up the ideas they wanna express, finding the words they wanna use, figuring out how to spell those words to express their ideas. And they're not bogged down just thinking about how do I form the letters. And what we tell the kids is once you learn printing and you learn cursive, then you choose your preferred mode of writing and then choose what, whether you want to write with a ballpoint, a pencil, um, a felt point tip pen. Um, the important thing is that others can read it, it's legible, and that it's automatic. And I think we need to be optimistic because after the schools got rid of handwriting except K to one, kindergarten to first grade, because of the common core, through the efforts of people like Kathleen Wright in Ohio and others who worked with state legislators across the country, over half of the states now have reinstituted 
handwriting instruction, including cursive. And I think it's going to continue to improve. But the other thing we need to work on is teaching teachers in the colleges that prepare our future teachers how to teach handwriting, to understand the developmental trajectory in learning to produce letters. And that includes handwriting readiness, working with clay and um, other kinds of activities to strengthen muscles in fingers. But then moving into first grade where it's not just a motor skill. Remember I talked about seeing the letter in your mind's eye. We use the term orthographic coding. We actually code letter forms in our memory. And that helps not only our writing, but our reading. It's also important for learning arithmetic and math, coding those numbers and how you form them. Because an important principle in psychology is production enhances perception. So if we can produce a form we're gonna be able to perceive it and read it better. But most importantly, because we do have technology, we also have to be teaching technology tools. And what we found when we first compared keyboarding to handwriting, the kids were really not very good at the keyboarding. Well, we found they were hunting and pecking, looking at the keys, not doing it in a consistent way. When we started teaching touch typing, you look at the screen, you cannot look at your hands or the keyboards. Your fingers have to memorize where each of those letter form keys are. Once they learned touch typing, they were able to do much better with the typewriter. Mm, so whether it's printing, cursive, or keyboarding, we have to teach it explicitly. Well, and let me read. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt we, you. We also have screens that we write on with either an index finger or a stylus. And we need to teach the students how to do that too. And if we teach it, then they'll be able to apply it. And I always think of the work of Skip Charles MacArthur at the University of Delaware and Steve Peverly at Columbia University, where they found that the handwriting for taking notes, if the students were competent in handwriting, was the most effective for taking notes from lectures that students use to study mm, and yeah. take tests. And that was not only high school, but also college. Yeah, as Robert was saying earlier. Let me read a few comments before our cutaway here. Norman writes, for what it's worth, I abandoned cursive during my early 20s, the middle 1960s. My handwriting was always sloppy and hard to read, so I started writing in modified block letters. The system has served me well enough, even if it's slower than cursive might be. Amy writes, I wish I could write this note in cursive, but not on this keyboard. I am a lover of handwriting. Always have been. I'm just a writing geek in general. I took a calligraphy class in college and have always wanted to get back into it. It's an art form, enjoyable, therapeutic in a meditative kind of way. Kind of sounds like similar things that you've said about handwriting, Sandra. And also this listener, David writes, I realized my granddaughter could not read cursive when she was unable to read her birthday card from me. When she went to summer camp, I wrote her a card, one column in cursive, one in handwritten block letters, and one printed. The text in each column was identical. The text told the story of the Rosetta Stone, and I explained she now had the modern version. 
of that decoder. That is adorable and also really reminds us to make sure that we're not judgy about who can write what and how well and whatever and just accommodate, teach, and uh, have a real enjoyment of this for what it can bring, which all three of my guests, Regina Berninger, Robert Wiley, and Sandra Gutierrez, are sharing today, as well as, of course, Professor Drew Gilpin-Faust, who wrote the piece that inspired today's topic, the Atlantic piece on Gen Z does not know how to read cursive. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to a couple more comments here. Scott writes, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I had to deal with dyspraxia, a learning disorder that affected my motor skills. Drawing, painting, and geometry class were all difficult for me. I worked very hard at my cursive and developed very good handwriting. Twelve years ago, I took some classes at a community college for fun. The 18 to 20-year-olds were amazed and made many comments about my Palmer cursive. I understand it may be going the way of the dodo, but it leaves me with some melancholy that a skill I worked and struggled so hard to master is disappearing. Lauren tweets, Please talk about the importance of cursive for students with dyslexia. One in five people are dyslexic. Many, many studies show how cursive is magic for students struggling with reading and writing. Robert Wiley, is that true? Well, um, dyslexia is, and I know that um, Virginia can say a lot about that, but there are different forms sort of dyslexia. So it, it depends somewhat on what the exact problem is. Um, but I, I will say that there is a connection between handwriting and the visual processing, as we've been saying, that it does affect how you are doing reading. Uh, dyslexia typically thought as a problem with the reading, although often it co-occurs with writing problems. It's called dysgraphia. Um, but I, mm -hmm. I will let, I'll, I'll let Virginia, I know you probably have something you want to say about that. Yeah, sure. Virginia, you want to add anything? Well, all students need the handwriting instruction. But just because you have dyslexia, cursive or printing is not necessarily going to cure your dyslexia. Yeah. That's a word reading problem related to phonology and orthography. And um, they, and they have um, spelling as well as reading problems. But some of the children with dyslexia have co-occurring dysgraphia. And if you need dys if you have dysgraphia, you have a handwriting problem and you need to learn both printing manuscript and cursive and it's probably going to take more specialized instruction and maybe some more time and practice and patience but they can learn it and um but cursive alone is not going to cure dyslexia they they need um many other kinds of interventions for dyslexia that's actually what i spent most of my professional career doing with studying learning disabilities. We just happened to find out that handwriting was so important. Mm -hmm. Well, let me see if I can fit Linda into the conversation. Hi, Linda. Oh, hi, good morning, thank you. This is great program, I've learned so much. When I uh, realized that my granddaughter uh, was not being taught cursive, I of course was quite alarmed, um, but I began to teach her cursive and she enjoyed the challenge, but she also felt that she had a skill that her other classmates didn't have. Mm. And it really kind of bolstered her a great deal. And I think it was, um, now I've learned that, of course, and she also had an artistic flair. She liked the, the artistic 
uh, facility with cursive. But now I've learned that it has so many other benefits, which definitely I will share. But I'll say that she feels much more empowered because she has an extra skill. Thanks for the program, Nina. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you, Linda. Let me go to Harfape. Hi, Harfape. Hi. Good morning. Um, I'm, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for this topic and this programming. But uh, cursive is part of my identity since I learned it as a child in uh, in India. I, was, I moved to the U.S. when I was 16. And then I found a lot of my peers and coworkers commenting, hey, we can't read what you're writing. But I found it similar to people telling me to get a nickname. Like this is, you know, uh, uh, this makes me more feel more connected to the to the recipient of a greeting card oh. or a postcard or letter I write to a voter. Um, and then when people say, do you know, change this way. Like, like, you know, why should I accommodate you? But this is just part of who I am. But sometimes I choose not to write in cursive if I'm giving out important information like uh, a website or like a, um, like a reminder. Like I make sure I write block letters or capital letters. Uh, but my thoughts definitely uh, flow more freely and cohesively when I'm writing cursive. And my dad has a perfect handwriting. I just want to add this last part. He, his is, cursive is perfect. Mine is not as perfect. But I choose not to. I choose to write my some of my letters differently because sometimes we are together and then, like we're signing our names and we have the same middle and last name. And if our letters look too similar, like it has to raise questions in some appointments or like some, at some government offices, they're like, hey, is the same person signing both of these? So I choose, <laughs> I write my S's and my G's a little differently than he does. And mine is not as italicized as his is. Yes. Well, I, I love hearing that, Hafepe. And we've had lots of listeners also just write in about about their parents' um, cursive as well and the connections they feel to them or what they feel like they know about them and how important it is to their identities. Samara writes, I'm a fourth grade teacher in Oakland who stopped teaching cursive because I just couldn't fit it into my day, but I brought cursive back as an activity to help the kids calm down after recess. And some students really took to it. I'd be devastated it became a lost language like so many home languages are for students. Well, Sandra, really quickly, we've got 10 seconds. Tell us what being so into handwriting has brought to your life. I mean, for me, handwriting is just a form of expression and it's like a personal token that I'm giving to somebody else if I'm writing a letter or a note. So I totally empathize with that. I relate to that. So I love it. <laughs> and you're what, a millennial? So I think uh, we can. I am. Yeah, give people I hope. I am actually. That. I was I was taught cursive also. So I, I was also very heartbroken when I knew that I learned that kids are not being taught cursive anymore. But, yeah. you know. Well, Sandra, thank you. Robert Wiley, thank you. Virginia Berninger, thank you. And as always, listeners, thank you. Grace Wan produced this segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. 
And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.